So how's your conscience this morning? Conscience is a troublesome thing, isn't it? C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to some lady. It was published in a book called Letters to an American Lady, so I don't know who it was. He said this in his letter. He said, we were talking about cats and dogs the other day. And we decided that both have consciences, but the dog, being an honest, humble person, always has a bad one, bad conscience. But the cat is a Pharisee and always has a good one. When the cat sits and stares you and, and stares you out, stares you out of countenance, he is thanking God that he is not as these dogs or these humans or even as these other cats. Now, I don't know about the consciences of cats and dogs, and I don't know how C.S. Lewis and whoever he was talking to decided that, but a conscience can be a troublesome thing. What would be more troublesome, though, is if you didn't have one. Or if you had the conscience of a cat. Uh, that would be more troublesome. We sometimes uh, deal with our consciences by comparing ourselves to the people around us. And usually, if you look, you know, not too hard, you can find someone and you can say, I thank God I am not as... You might be able to say, well, I'm not as bad as... I haven't done this or that horrible thing. Or sometimes we just say, well, nobody's perfect. That's, that's true. That's true. So I can sort of ease my conscience with that expression. But what if nobody's perfect turns out not to be a good excuse? In fact, if somebody does me wrong, and then they say, well, nobody's perfect. That really doesn't help me. Even if they were to say, well, at least I didn't do whatever you did. That doesn't help me either. You know, uh, the book of Leviticus, the law of God... In the law of God, God says to his people, be holy, because I'm holy. And Jesus, when he was teaching the law in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, where he said stuff like, well, if you, you, you know you're not supposed to commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's adultery. 
that the problem is deeper than your outward behavior. The problem is a problem of the heart, that you are, in fact, at heart, a breaker of the law of God. This is Jesus who said this. And at the conclusion of this whole section where he does this on various points of the law, here's what he says. Therefore, you must be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It turns out that with Jesus, nobody's perfect is not a good excuse. Well, that makes sense because Jesus was in fact perfect. But it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. God has a law, and apparently every last one of us is a law breaker and subject to the penalty of the law. God had a law with Adam. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we have all been subjected to the penalty of Adam's breaking of the law of God. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we've been reading about the system of sacrifices that God put in place in the Old Testament. Sacrifices for sin, they're called. And when we get to chapter 10, we've read, as we read last Sunday, that there's, there's things that that system, that law can't do, wasn't even really intended to do, things the law cannot do. Well, let me just read from Hebrews chapter 10, the first 10 verses, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been cleansed once, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This text opens 
with a statement of the disability of the law. Maybe I should say inability. Because the law was never designed to do these things. It did not have the purpose of accomplishing these things. These things were to be accomplished another way. Here's the list. The first thing the law cannot do is perfect those who draw near. It cannot make you whole. Now, what this text has in mind in particular is a particular type of wholeness, not just make you whole as a person, but that's also included here. But what is really the focus is worship. The law cannot make you whole as a worshiper. It cannot make you, it cannot perfect you as a worshiper of God. It, here's, a, here's a better way of saying this maybe. It cannot make you truly suitable for the presence of God. If we, apart, if we, with only the sacrifices of the law, present ourselves before God, we're going to have to come back next year and make another sacrifice and another sacrifice tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after, and we are never actually going to be made whole worshipers of God. We don't belong in His presence. We saw this even in the very design of His temple where there is a barrier between God and His people that can only be breached by the priest, the high priest, and only once a year. And we're going to have to do it again next year. We can't go in there. Only He can. And He better take the blood of the sacrifice. So the law never was designed even to make us really suitable for the presence of God. Well, that's a problem. Because God is present. The law, also this text says, didn't cleanse the conscience. The sacrifices of the law didn't actually remove sin. But Christ did. But the old sacrifices did not. They sort of covered it for the time being. In anticipation of the sacrifice that would remove it. And that is how we get a cleansed sin no longer on us. And we read at the end of the chapter. He's actually taken carried it away from us. So the scripture that says he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that is accomplished in the sacrifice of Christ. So that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And even when, you're, when you condemn yourself Christ 
forgives you and intercedes for you and you stand before God in his righteousness, not your own. This text says that the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. The good things to come. The actual restoration of our full humanity. Well, and the law carries the promise of these good things to come, but it doesn't accomplish the promise of these good things. If you were to look at Exodus 29:45, God declares there that I will be their God. They will be my people. I will dwell among them. He will be present with his people. And yet the law doesn't make us suitable for that. I think you could carry the good things to come all the way back to Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And in Christ that shall be restored. So the law doesn't do these things. It doesn't perfect us as worshipers. It doesn't cleanse our conscience. It doesn't actually remove our sin. It doesn't provide the things it promises. The promise is there, but the provision is not. There's something more in the plan of God, in the promise of God, than is in the law and its sacrifices. A sacrifice that did accomplish these, these things would only need to be offered one time. Because then these things would be accomplished. So what on earth is the law for? Why does God give it if it doesn't accomplish these things? Well, it does accomplish some things. In these sacrifices, this is Hebrews 10, verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. That's what it accomplishes. You could read about this in Romans chapter 3 or in, I don't know, the middle of the book of Galatians. Let me just read from Romans. I'm going to start with verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Oh, this is the, what the law accomplishes, the stopping of every mouth. <laughs> and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That is what the law accomplishes. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what the law accomplishes. That's what it's for. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the promise is there, but it's not fulfilled there. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. So that's the old sacrificial system was God pass over these sins until the sacrifice to end all sacrifices comes. And so the law is a reminder of sin year after year because we have to come back again next year because it didn't actually solve our problem. The law weighs down the conscience The law clarifies the problem. It doesn't solve it. The law also, as we just read, points ahead to Christ. Because we need something more than we can produce by our own obedience. points to Christ, it carries the promise of the solution, the solution, I will dwell. If you looked at Deuteronomy chapter 17, you would see that in the law is the promise of a king who will be the perfectly righteous king of Israel. We haven't seen one of those yet. Well, except we see it in Christ. And so the law itself points to the day when the law itself will be written on our hearts instead of just imposed on us as a burden. The first covenant anticipates the second, the new covenant, in which the very Spirit of God indwells His people so that they are enabled, so that their sins are removed, so that they can be who we are all made to be, living in fellowship with God and reflecting that in our fellowship with everything else. Therefore, we read, (laughs) let me get back to Hebrews here. When Christ came into the world, that's very important, the wording here, when Christ, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And remember, we're talking to a group of Hebrews, Jewish believers in Jesus. And so when Messiah came into the world, he said, now what's funny here is, What's quoted here, we don't have recorded anywhere else as the words of Jesus. You can't find this in the gospel record of the life of Jesus. When was this said? Well, we just read it in Psalm 40, out of the mouth of the type Messiah, David, the king who is the prototype, if you will, of the king. 
And here's what he said. Christ, Messiah, said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. To do the thing God wants done that the law of Moses cannot do. So, because of the ineffectual nature of the old sacrifices, Jesus Christ declares some things. The first thing he declares is that those sacrifices don't satisfy God. Those sacrifices are not what God ultimately desires. Now, this is repeated in the Old Testament. God says it all the time. You know, it would be better if you obeyed than you need a sacrifice. It's never quite all the way home with these sacrifices. They're not fully satisfactory to God. The second thing that the Messiah declares is that God has crafted a body for the Son. A body you have prepared for me. This is just the a statement of the incarnation of the eternal Son in the man, Jesus. He is a man, a human being. He's at least as human as you and I. In fact, he's not a broken human, so I would argue he's even a little more human than you and I. made humans to be. And so you see the fulfillment of the will of God, I will be with them. This is in the name of Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. He comes to dwell with us in the embodied human being, the eternal Son made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has crafted a body for the Son. And then he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. I will actually accomplish your will as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You know, when Jesus was around and he was talking to the Pharisees or the scribes or some of those guy, kind of guys one day, and he said, he said, you guys claim Moses, but if you believed Moses, you'd recognize me. Because Moses wrote about me. You see, the point of the law of Moses is Christ. It is not somehow that we might find our way to make ourselves again acceptable to God. It is about God's provision for that in His Son, made flesh, given as a sacrifice, risen from the dead, ever living to intercede for us. 
Do you realize we need eternal intercession? So he says, behold, I have come to do your will as it is written. You could see this in the passage in Deuteronomy 17 about the righteous king. You could see this declaration in John 6, 38, and repeatedly throughout the book of John where Jesus says, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That will is the good things to come that were mentioned in verse 1. The perfecting of the worshipers, the cleansing of the conscience, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Bless all the nations. That's the will of God performed by the person Jesus, the man Jesus, the Son of God made flesh. That carries all the way back to Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. As we read in the book of Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. As he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the one who accomplishes the will of God. that was set up in the law of Moses, but not, God never intended to fulfill it by the nation of Israel adhering to the law of God, except in his son. Jesus, in fact, did perfectly fulfill the law of God in every detail. He was, as we've read in Hebrews, without sin. He did not sin one time from the time he was born till the time he died. He never has sinned one time. He utterly fulfills the law of God, and in his sacrifice, that fulfillment of the law of God is granted to you and me. When he said above, I'm now in verse 8, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. The writer is repeating this, this quote with a point. He said, this first and then this. These didn't work. Then this did He goes on to make this explicit. He says, he does away with the first. You've neither desired these sacrifices or been pleased by them. I've come to do your will. That's the second. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. There was a system that has been replaced because it wasn't all the system that we needed. He does away with the system in which our obedience is required, but not a. Paul says this all over the place. No one is justified by the works of the law. It's not possible. It's never been done. It, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
There's a system, the law of God, which requires our obedience. which is then not accomplished under that system. How is it accomplished? I have come to do your will, Messiah says. That's how it was accomplished. He does away with that system in order to establish... This system, I have come to do your will, in which his obedience fulfills the promise. His obedience fulfills the promise. Not mine, which is good because I, mine isn't that good. I can say nobody's perfect. Uh-huh. What if the standard is perfect? As it is. So he accomplishes the will of God. Oh, but there's more to it. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, by that will, in Jesus' own perfect fulfillment of the will of God, Jesus offered his own body as a sacrifice, a sacrifice for sin. Jesus satisfies where the old sacrifices couldn't satisfy. The man Jesus offered. Uh, sorry, I got to find it. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body. You remember what he said, you've prepared a body for me when he came. And it was the sacrifice of that body that satisfies God for us. And then it says this, in doing this, he has sanctified us once and for all. <laughs> he has sanctified us once and for all. Here, sanctified means we've changed categories. It is a total change of category. We, the word is the same as the word for holy. We've been made holy. Oh, and you remember Jesus said, be holy even as I am holy. God said that actually in Leviticus. So you have been made holy in the sacrifice of Christ once and for all. That's not reversible. He sanctified us. Oh, that means he made us whole worshipers. He made us whole as worshipers. He perfected us as worshipers. He has actually made you and I truly suited for the presence of God by the sacrifice of his body. That is why the book of Hebrews constantly is going on and on all the time. Draw near, draw near, draw near. Come boldly before the throne of grace. You can go behind the veil 
because of the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, the sacrifice of Christ, the veil is removed so that God now can dwell with you and I. We are actually suited worshipers, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, interceded for by Christ at all times, so that even now, if I were to sin now, the sacrifice of Christ covers it. And Jesus himself says to his eternal father, it's okay, he's with me. He made us whole as worshipers, truly suited for the presence of God. Another meaning of the word sanctified is he claimed us. Set us apart entirely for God and for God alone. So you see, when we come to worship, when we come to do that thing described in Romans 1, to present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy, that's the same word, pleasing to God, what that means is that in Christ, when I present myself, all I'm doing is recognizing something that's already true about me. I'm just remembering and confessing that I belong to him, that I have been claimed by the cross. And I am and am only for God. I belong to him entirely because of the work of Christ. I think you could see this uh, all over the New Testament, maybe in particular in the book of Ephesians. Of Ephesians, the body of Christ, the church, called the fullness of God in him. And Paul's great prayer concludes with something like that we might experience that fullness in the church. That God would dwell among us. That's the prayer, isn't it? That you'd be strengthened with power by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That these things would be realized in the body of Christ, in the people of God, in those who have put their faith in Christ, those who have simply said, yes, I'll have that, thank you. Turns out that nobody's perfect is not a good excuse. We need the one who is perfect. We need the one who has done the will of God in every last detail and has, in doing the will of God, accomplished our redemption once and for all. Amen. <laughs> Father, we give you thanks, for this is truly good news. Lord, I pray, please, by the Spirit, strengthen us with power in the inner man, so that Christ might fully occupy our hearts, so that every day we might exhibit this amazing grace 
that you have poured out on us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.